Okay, good evening, everyone. So we're going to begin with a 25 uh, or so minute sitting. Um, and then uh, I'll have some, uh, some things to say, and then hopefully there'll be time for some discussion um, afterwards. So please get in a comfortable position. And this sitting will be about uh, half body scan, half um, open awareness practice. So to begin, just please take a few deep breaths. Settle into the moment. Feel the body fill up with air and exhaling slowly through your slightly open mouth. Breathing in deeply through the nose. And exhaling slowly through your slightly open mouth. And now let your breath just come and go at its own rhythm. And feel free to continue breathing into the nose and out through the mouth or let your mouth come to a close and let your breath go in and out through the nose, whichever feels most comfortable to you. The key thing is just let the breath come and go at its own rhythm. Shallow, deep. Rapid, slow, uneven. Doesn't matter what the breath feels like, just let it be. Feel the rise and fall of the chest, rise and fall of the belly. If you notice any impulse to manipulate or control the breath, see if you can let that go and just let the breath breathe itself. Just attending to how the breath feels. And now we're gonna begin a brief body scan. So to start, please bring your awareness to the very top 
of your head, just feeling sensations there. Notice any tension, any holding, tingling, pulsing, whatever sensations there may be up there, just notice what they are. not trying to change them, not trying to do anything, just passively observing, just noticing. Now please bring your awareness down into your forehead. What do you feel there? Any residual tension from the day? Now, how about the eyes? The soft tissue around your eyes. Now your cheeks. Here in Williamstown, it's a very warm early evening. The sun is so bright. You can feel the warmth of the air of the room on my skin. How does the air of the room that you're in feel on the skin of your face? Now bring your awareness to your jaw muscles, the muscles that you use to chew. For a number of us, this is a place where we can carry quite a bit of residual tension throughout the day and even night. Some of us grinding our teeth in our sleep. If you encounter any discomfort, even pain, any aches in the jaw muscles, just let your awareness soften around it, letting whatever you discover be there, but letting the awareness be soft and gentle. When you encounter discomfort, you may notice an impulse to tense up around that discomfort. Just notice that impulse and see if you can just soften around the sensations instead.
Now please bring awareness to your tongue. And just to start, notice how the tongue is situated in your mouth. And bring your awareness to the tip of the tongue, just feeling whatever sensations there are there. And then the middle part of the tongue, what's the say, what sensations do you feel there? And then the back of the tongue. Now please bring your awareness to your lips. And now let's explore the throat area. Can you feel any movement in the throat it's associated with the breath as the chest rises and falls? Can you feel any movement in the throat? And then now the shoulder muscles, the muscles that run from the shoulder sockets to the base of the spine, the base of the skull, I mean. The shoulders, the base of the skull. Those muscles that get tight when we bend over too off, too long, looking at screens. Can you sense any movement in the shoulder muscles that's associated with the breath? Even if your shoulders are quite tight, there may be some subtle movement in the shoulders, even a slight one as your upper body fills up with air. And as it exhales. And then now turn to the upper part of your right arm from your shoulder to your elbow, just scanning the upper right arm for any sensations. You carrying any tension, you holding any tension here in the upper right arm. 
How about the forearm on the right side? The right wrist. And by the way, if there's ever a part of the body that we're scanning where you don't feel any sensations, that's okay. Just notice the absence of sensation, if that's the case. Instruction is always just to notice how things feel. And if you don't feel much of anything, just feel that. And how about the right hand now? beginning with the backside of the right hand. Then moving into the palm area. And then the fingers of the right hand starting with the thumb and moving one by one to the pinky. Now let's bring our awareness to the upper left arm from the shoulder to the left elbow. What do you feel in the shoulder muscles, the biceps, the triceps? Just noticing, just observing. How about the left forearm? And the left wrist. Now the back side of the left hand. And the palm of the left hand. And then the fingers from the thumb to the pinky, one by one.
Now let's bring our awareness to the area between our shoulder blades, the upper back. Notice how this area of the body moves as you breathe in and out. and sensations produced by that movement. And remember, once again, we're not trying to do anything to the body. We're not trying to affect these sensations. We're just noticing, just observing. Let's bring our awareness to the lower back. Especially the muscles that run up and down either side of the spine in the lower back. Can you feel any movement here in the lower back? Any slight expansion contraction as you breathe in and out. We tend to think of the breath as having to do with the front side of the body, the chest and the belly. But there is sometimes expansion in the back as well. See if you can feel that. Now bring your awareness to the center of your chest. In the sternum area, just Feel the sensations there as you breathe in and out. And then let your awareness move outward from there and just to feel the sensations in your rib cage as a whole your chest, how they move as your lungs inflate with air. Notice the sensation in the tissue between your ribs. Now, please bring your awareness to the upper belly, feeling the muscles of the upper abdomen, the diaphragm. 
How does the area just under the lowest ribs feel as you breathe in and out? Now let your awareness move to the lower belly, below the belly button, feeling all the sensations there, all the energy, all the emotions, and just the feeling of the rise and fall of the belly here as you breathe in and out. For some of you, the belly will move significantly. It'll be easy to feel, but for some of you, the belly won't move much at all as you're breathing, and that's okay. Just notice the extent to which it moves as you breathe. Many of you will be feeling some kind of tension in the belly is very common. And just notice that. If there's any discomfort, any unpleasant feelings in the belly, notice how the mind and the body react to that. Just watching it all, passively observing. Letting it all be. And for the next five or so minutes, please just attend in a sort of soft and open way to the feeling of the breath, rise and fall of the chest or the belly. And just notice how the body's feeling, what thoughts are moving through your mind, what emotions. And whenever you get distracted, lost in fantasy, just gently return your awareness to the breath, not in a tight way, not with a laser focus, but just as a way to keep you grounded in physical reality. Open enough so you can be aware of sensations throughout the body, sounds in the space around you. Just feeling the breath, using the breath as an anchor.
if a thought pulls you away that seems to have a lot of emotional energy to it or charge, you might take special note of the content of that thought by labeling it, just saying to yourself, having a thought and just repeating the thought to yourself. Like having a thought, this is boring, or having a thought, I can't do this, or whatever it may be. Just noting what kinds of thoughts are hooking you in particular. Then come back to the body and the breath. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. Feel free to stretch, get comfortable. So um, the, the main thing I want to, to talk about tonight is um, a brief um, passage from a s- story about Tony Packer's teaching. Um, it's, a, it's something that I'll probably return to over time. And so I don't expect to do like a sort of comprehensive you know, discussion of it tonight, just um, sort of um, doing some initial discussion of it. I think it's a really fascinating um, exchange between Tony Packer and one of her students. But um, before I do that, I just want to say a little bit about the note that I included in this week's email about um, being open to, or wanting to make time this summer for one-on-one conversations about practice for anyone who would like to do that. Uh, It's something that I've been wanting to do for a while, um, have occasionally opened the door to, but um, during the school year, I felt like I really just had no uh, time um, to be able to do. But um, now the summer is starting. If anyone who um, you know attends regularly would like to talk for like 20 or 30 minutes um, on the phone or on Zoom about how their sitting practice is going, um, just shoot me an email, let me know, and I'll be happy to set up a time. Um, as I said in my uh, email message, I think I'd like to limit this to people who've been coming regularly to Tuesday nights. Um, and, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I, I think I'll just leave that up to your judgment, but 
let's say it'd be good if you've been coming, you know, like at least half the time over the last month or two months. Um, and I think the most important thing is that you have a daily sitting practice. I don't think there's much point talking about um, practice if you can't sit daily. I mean, if you're not sitting every day, then that's the first thing that I think you need to do. Um, and But if you're doing that and you feel like there are things about your practice that you'd be interested in just exploring in a conversation, um, let me know. I'd be happy to do that. And, um, you know, I'm a Matt, you know, uh, maybe like um, we could fit in two or three of these conversations over the summer, every three or four weeks until the school year starts again. Um, if, you, if you're interested, one, one conversation alone would be fine. That's all you want, but sometimes it can be useful to, to have a couple or a few. Um, I think these kinds of chats can be very important. I've, I talk with my own um, teacher, Ezra Beta, once every three weeks. Um, and sometimes there's stuff to talk about, sometimes there isn't, but it's so on. Uh, I think, so, so really, I think the most useful thing about um, these kinds of conversations is that the stuff that really is most important for us to work with in our practice are the very things that we have the most trouble seeing. Um, they are by definition so deeply part of our conditioning that we don't really even sometimes sort of realize like how we're thinking about practice or, or that the ways we're thinking about meditation practice, the way we're thinking about our own sort of experience, our own in our lives is so colored by the conditioning that we have. It can be really useful to have another person's perspective. Um, just, just simply them being another person, you know, who can, so, um, you know, just to give you, I mean, I think that the conversation between Joan Tollefson and Tony Packer is a really good example of the kind of stuff that can come up. Um, but, uh, um, you know, in conversations I've had with people, you know, just even the way that you follow the breath and talking about how, um, how it feels to note, note thoughts, what kinds of thoughts are coming up. Um, sometimes it's just interesting that, 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 to think about like, huh, so why do you why are you describing it this way? You know, um, why why are you why are you expressing your frustration about how this is going in this particular way? And then and then it can open into um, sort of um, kind of interesting explorations of like the uh, kind of the, the different personalities, the different parts of ourself, um, different voices that we use when we talk to ourselves, um, and it can just sometimes sometimes just like in a way it just illuminate them in a way that makes them easier to work with in the future. Um, so um, so anyway, just want to put that out there um, if anyone's interested. So uh, any any questions about this? Um, okay. So um, so this is a wonderful uh, exchange between um, a person named Joan Tollefson and her teacher, Tony Packer. Actually, I'm not sure, I can't remember, but um, Pam, were you the person who first showed me this passage? I knew it, like, I don't know if it, yeah, yeah. I think, I think a long time ago, you actually might've sent this to me and I really loved it. And it's something that I've referred to very often. Um, uh, when I've been talking, I talk to individual people about practice. Um, so, um, and it's, um, 
something that resonates a lot with me. I think um, it, it to, to, in my view, reveals something very, very deep and important about what we're doing when we're practicing. Um, uh, and um, it's also precisely the way I um, ended up sort of becoming liberated from my own version of what Joan Tolleson suffered from, which was bulimia. So I had a very, very deep, um, deeply ingrained eating disorder when I was uh, 18, um, which was completely resistant to anything that any therapist tried to tell me. Um, you know, just like Tolleson and her finger chewing compulsion. Um, I had talked to a number of psychotherapists about my eating disorder, and it just seemed completely impervious to anything that anyone might tell me about it. Um, and um, when I moved to the Zen Center when I was 18, uh, Snow Mountain Zen Center, and began just you know sitting a lot, um, uh, I had actually at that point completely given up any hope of, um, of somehow getting over my, my bulimia. It was something that I just was, felt resigned to. And it certainly was not why I moved to the Zen Center. I mean, and, and one of the interesting things that's happened to the way we talk about meditation now is that it's so couched in the language of mental health. You know, it's all about mental wellness, but that wasn't actually anything. That had nothing to do with why we, we moved to the Zen Center back then. It was all about being awakened. It was about achieving enlightenment. And we kind of assumed that actually it would probably bring us to the edge of insanity to do that. So it was not about, um, about you know, becoming mentally well. But what I did there, um, somehow after just a few months of living there, I don't, I don't remember exactly, like three, four or five months, I realized that actually like I was free of this disorder. Um, and, um, and it is because I did exactly what Tony Packer is suggesting Joan Tolleson do with her um, compulsion, um, which is just be with it, uh, not try to fix it, not try to stop it. I mean, I, I'd stopped because I'd given up. I thought it was hopeless. So, um, and I just experienced it um, very, very intimately. Um, and, um, and I think it's a really like strange counterintuitive idea. You're doing something that is like very unhealthy, you know, that you want to stop doing. And the idea that you would actually not necessarily try to stop yourself from doing that, but just explore it, experience it, um, that that might actually be the key to um, shifting or transforming your relationship to it. That's really weird, you know, when you think about it. Um, and, um, and so I, anyway, so I want to um, share uh, just a few initial thoughts about this, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about it. Um, and so I think there, there are two things I'll say right off the bat. One is that um, I think if you can stop yourself from engaging in a destructive behavior, you should just stop. I don't think there's any suggestion here that um, the idea is not to try to make yourself stop doing things that you think are really unhealthy. Like if you can stop yourself from smoking and, you know, then do it. Um, if you can stop yourself from engaging in sort of disordered eating, then do it, right? I think um, the thing is that those of us who have experienced compulsions or addictions like this know that that's not always possible. Um, and then the question becomes, what do you do, right? When you um, are um, up against uh, something that you can't stop doing, but you really, really want to, you know, you really want to stop yourself from doing and that you feel deep shame um, and frustration about. 
Um, so I think that's, so I just want to make clear that, you know, I'm in no way suggesting and no, we're by no means sharing a story like this to say that we shouldn't just like, you know, try to like stop ourselves from doing things that are self-destructive where we can. I think, um, and you know, this is an extreme version, her, her, her biting her nails for, for hours at a time. Bulimia, it's, you know, it's not super uncommon, but it's pretty extreme version too. But I think you, to, in case, I think some of you can probably relate to extreme things like this, but in case you can't, um, it might be worth thinking of um, slightly like toned down versions, like the, the way that you just cannot stop bickering with a partner, you know, the way you can't stop criticizing a child, even though you know it's not helpful, right? Um, even though you know that it's actually just kind of like screw up your relationship, but you just somehow can't stop. You can't stop yourself from saying that thing or to a parent for that matter. Um, uh, it could just, um, anyway, there, there are, I think many, many, a whole range of things that we, I think, do in this compulsive way that don't rise a level of, you know, uh, an eating disorder or uh, an addiction to a chemical or something like that. We all have, I think, addiction and compulsion and certain kind of behaviors, defensive strategies, you know, like, like when we can't stop ourselves from freezing up when, um, you know, someone uh, criticizes us, for example, um, uh, when we, you know, when, um, so, you know, so much of what we're working with when we're practicing are these kind of, you know, basically mental scripts, behavioral scripts and patterns that have gone out of control, that just run, operate on their own. Um, and that we, um, in, in, in very deep ways, do not seem to have control over. Um, and I think one of the mistakes uh, that we naturally make when we come to meditation practice is thinking that it has, it is like the key key it's a way to actually finally get control over our minds you know to make ourselves um not react in the ways that we we um you know want to or to finally behave in the ways that we think we should um it's very very tempting to think of meditation practice as ultimately a, a kind of self-improvement project um, and I think this is the like very key mistake about practice that Tony Packer is, I think, shining a light on and saying like, that's not what it's about. You know, um, as long as you're doing that, you're just engaged in psychology. You're just engaged in self-help, you know, um, and real like meditation practice, like the kind that Tony Packer is talking about, um, is, is working at operating at a much deeper level and is doing something other than improving the self you know so um so let me just uh i i, I don't want to assume everyone has read um i'm going to just read a bit of what i shared with email by email so that you all you know everyone knows what i'm talking about and also for those of you who have read it it's fresh in your minds it won't be too long and it's definitely worth listening to again okay so um, Tolleson has just shared um, this experience of nail biting with Tony. Also, one of the things that's useful, the one-on-one -on -one conversations that I'm talking about, is sometimes you, you're just, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing you might not want to ask about in a group, you know, um, 
And you can go places one-on-one that you might not want to in front of a group. And also I think there's a back and forth around these very like difficult things as possible in one-on-one settings. That's also difficult because people, I think, tend in these groups to ask me kind of abstracted versions of questions they want to ask about very personal things, but they're kind of like made slightly more innocuous, you know, because it's like, it's a very, no, it's it's kind of difficult to, to really, and I, hard for me to imagine someone asking what Joan asked Tony right here in this group. Someone might, and I think that would be cool, but I would be totally understand if you wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But anyway, she's just shared this with Tony and Tony listens and suggests not trying to get rid of it. Simply be with it, she suggests. What is it? How does it feel? What are the thoughts, including the desire to stop, the belief that I can't, the judgments of myself? Experience the sensations in my jaw, my fingers, my shoulder, my stomach, hear the sounds in the room. Just listen to the whole thing without judgment. Can all of this be allowed to reveal itself? Tony asks. You can't impose improvements, she says. With willpower comes resistance. Check it out for yourself. How exactly did I stop drinking, doing drugs, or smoking cigarettes. There were numerous attempts that failed, and then there was success. How did that happen? What shifted? Is there a person here, a me, who's capable of deciding to stop an addictive pattern? If so, why doesn't it always work? Why do some people succeed and others fail? Why is it that someone like me, who has successfully let go of many addictive behaviors, is still biting my fingers. Why don't I stop? What brings a person to the point of stopping? Habit has two parts, Tony says. There's the habit itself, finger biting, smoking, drinking, whatever. And there is the observer who wants to stop, who is also a habit. And there is the conflict, the battle between the desire to indulge, which is an escape from what is, and the desire to stop, which is also a movement away from what is. Tony suggests that the only real solution lies in complete awareness. In such awareness, there is no intention, no judgment, no conflict, no separation from the problem, no self to be improved or fixed, no direction. It is open, relaxed, seeing. So I think one of the key, there's this, every, every bit of this is really rich, um, but I think one of the key things that, um, that Packer is really asking Tollefson to see is the way in which the part of herself who wants to stop and is trying to exercise willpower to make herself stop is itself just another mental habit, um, just like the part of her that engages in the compulsive behavior. Um, but it's a part of her that she wants to identify with, right? But it is just as much caught up in the drama of self and me as the other part is. It's just that she's just trying to pick and choose saying, I want this part, but I don't want this part, you know? And what awareness practice 
does or allows to happen is for us to access um, something that's deeper than either of those parts, either the part that is engaging in the compulsive behavior for me, the eating, the bulimia, the binging and purging, and the part of me that so badly want to exercise control over this. And the interesting thing is like, they, we think of these as different, but they are caught up often in a kind of psychodrama that the conflict is actually something that keeps both things in place. Um, and the only way to get out of that terrible conflicted drama of the self is to just observe, observe it all, just be aware. And that is exactly what I did. I mean, even in those moments where I was engaging in my bulimic behaviors, bringing a rigorous awareness to what I was doing moment by moment, the binging, the purging, the loathing. Um, I love this feeling, you know, there's, there's this kind of, um, I just, um, there's a, a couple of paragraphs later. I mean, and, and I think, by the way, if you haven't clicked on the link to read the whole of this story um, by Joan Tolson, it's so worth it. So, because there's, there's even the other parts I haven't read are just like amazing. But there's this place where Tolson is, um, is uh, describing like some of the thoughts that she noticed. Um, it's like, I have to bite. I can't stop. I should stop. I'm addicted. I'm an addict. I'm a terrible person. How can I stop? If I just get this one loose end, then I'll be satiated. It will be unbearable to feel what I would feel if I stopped. That last sentence, it will be unbearable to feel what I would feel if I stopped. I think is like, that is so powerful. That is exactly what it feels like, what it felt like for me to get caught in the middle of one of these compulsive cycles. Like once it starts, you just feel like if I stop, I'll have to feel whatever it is that is underlying all of this, you know, and I can't do that. Um, and so the real, I think, turning point where, was where I became willing to feel what I would feel if I stopped or even just kept doing it, you know, like both, like just the key was not thinking of this behavior as something that was just like a failure. That was like, this part of me could not succeed making myself stop. So it's just, I might as well give up. You know, and then just like, you know, a few hours later, wake up from this spell. But at any moment that I could muster the willingness to bring awareness to how it was feeling. And over time, and I think it took a few months, but over time, it just shifted. In some mysterious way, my relationship to, I think, both sides of me, the part that was engaged, that deeply caught up in this kind of addictive behavior, and the part of me that so desperately wanted to stop. And I accessed another place that was able to just watch this drama unfold. Um, and I think there, there are many different ways that um, meditation teachers, Buddhist teachers, and I think psychologists have tried to describe what this deeper place is. One of the classic ways is, you know, like, um, a big self, the big self versus the small self, you know, um, the observer, the witness, like versus like the, the contents of consciousness, um, or like, um, you know, a, a primary consciousness versus secondary consciousness, like the, something like a space of awareness versus like the ego, whatever it may be. 
I think the exact terms that we use are not important. The important thing is, can we experience what it is to just bring awareness to whatever we are experiencing? And so even if you don't have a compulsion like this, I think this really shows something important about what we're doing when we practice. It's like, even if the stakes aren't as high, even if the behaviors aren't as problematic, um, the practice is still the same, right? It's still, um, when I feel an impulse to hmm, think an unkind thought or to say something that's unkind or to whatever, to eat that extra, you know, slice of cake that I don't need to, or um, to turn, to, to look at my phone when I don't need to, or whatever it may be, um, you know, are we identifying with a part of our mind that just uh, the part of the self that just, you know, wants to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I want to be good. You know, I want to be a good person, you know, or can we see that impulse as just another part of the passing show, the storyline of the self and see that actually the point is not to like become the good self, you know, but actually to get somewhere beneath the self completely into this kind of awareness that sees all of this as just the arising and the passing away of different kinds of thoughts and impulses. And that's why this is, I think, I'm not sharing this story just because I think there are enough people here who have a terrible compulsion that they need some advice how to practice with, but because I think it is generally like illuminating about the nature of what this whole practice is all about. Um, and um, by the way, I think, um, you know, I, 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 I'm guessing because like um, psychedelics are so much in the news lately, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. That's how it's like, becomes almost like mainstreamed. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that maybe, but like, you know, it's just, there's research going on. There's like, there's a lot of buzz um, in popular culture about the potential of, of bringing psychedelics into um, psychotherapeutic context. But I think that um, one of the reasons why psychedelics um, are effective in the way they are is because they disrupt the, the, the habitual ego structures. They disrupt um, the ordinary sense of self and give us access to something that lies beyond or beneath it, a way of being aware that's beyond it. And I think that's what meditation practice does too, but in a much gentler and much more gradual way. It also is allowing us to disidentify with or unplug from this like primary kind of consciousness, which we have identified with so tightly, but which is really, um, um, it, often just like a collection of different kinds of coping mechanisms, you know, that we have like formed over the years. And, um, and so like trying to fight a deep compulsion with that mind is just ineffective in the ways that Tony Packer is talking about. It's like, it's like too top down. It's like too operating at the level of cognition. And what meditation practice allows us to do is get somewhere beneath that cognitive mind. And this like open, relaxed seeing, um, something beyond the, the cognitive self. And it just, and I think just in the way that actually people have no idea why psychedelics work in the same way, I don't think we can really say why meditation works in this way. I mean, there is something kind of profoundly mysterious about it, um, but it does. It, 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 and I think it's because it just um, gives us access to a, a level of consciousness where things are just like new patterns, new responses can conform new reactions 
can form new possibilities, how we might behave and think and feel can be formed. Because it's not stuck in that kind of like um, patterns that um, have become so ingrained, so deeply rutted or grooved in our, our egos. Um, so um, anyway, the practice is just awareness. The practice is just awareness. Um, even in the places where you think, no, here I gotta, I gotta get a grip. This, you know, like, and so you know, like, actually, Audrey, like last time, brought up a you know issue of, um, you know, like I have a feel tension in my shoulder, right? And um, she said, you know, she actually kind of balked at the suggestion that you might want to actually um, bring awareness to the tension to the, res- you know, and, and that and explore it. And um, I said, why not just like sort of breathe deeply into it and just like let it relax, like if there's something uncomfortable. And I think there are, there are many times we can do that. Um, and that's wonderful. But I think everyone at some point when you're practicing deeply, and even if you're not practicing deeply, you're gonna come up against something that's not gonna be susceptible to that kind of management, let me put it this way. And, um, and at some very deep level, practice is not a form of doing. We're not acting on ourselves. We're just being. And in that space of being, that's where real healing can happen. Real sort of shifts. I thought the word that Tony Packard is like some, something shifts. And she doesn't explain it either. You know, it's like, but, um, but shifts happen. Um, but it's when we stop trying to make them happen. So any thoughts, questions, um, comments, anything? I have uh, something I was thinking of when you were when you were talking, Bernie. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I just I really resonated with everything you said about well the the passage that you that you read us and just like everything you um, said about it, and especially the part of kind of just observing the mental drama that's going on and I I had like this habit um in high school and somewhat beyond of like picking my skin that was similar cycle of just like shame and like anxiety it was this like release of tension but at the same time like made me feel really bad about myself and um I managed to like it was a very long process but I like did sort of manage to pretty much on my own like get over it which um was basically just a process of like getting so caught up in these like spirals and then at a certain point like i think somehow i was able to have a little more awareness about like that that mental drama that was going on and i think just the part i wanted to add was like um i think i found like what what helped me too was finding a sense of humor in it like because it's it's so absurd and like ridiculous like the kinds of things that were going on in my mind and the things that i was telling myself about it and the pressure i was putting on the situation which was really not even it really wasn't even a big deal and the only person it was affecting was myself like i wasn't hurting anyone but myself but i was like being so hard on myself about it and there's something so absurd about that it's like you're hurting yourself more 
by being so hard on yourself about something you're doing that is already hurting you and like I don't know just like the sense of humor that you can have when you like are able to take a little step back or like if you're able to laugh at yourself that can maybe give you that little bit of perspective that can be helpful in that kind of situation too. I'm so glad you said that, Lily. I mean, I think actually like a sense of humor is probably one of the most important things in practice generally, right? Um, but I think it's especially important in situations like this because like, it's like diffuses just like, like the sense of like battle or conflict, you know, like I got to. Um, and also I think it, um, you know, I think we, we, when we're doing something like skin picking, right? Or, or bulimia or something like this, like it's there's so much self-loathing and shame, you know, and like and this is hard to get over it. And we think that that's a sign of how much we want to get better, right? How much we want to stop, but we don't realize it actually is deepening and perpetuating the cycle. You know, it's just part of the ego drama. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think a sense of humor is like so important. Um, it lightens everything. Yeah. Nice to see you, by the way. You too. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I'm so glad I could come. Anyone have, oh, it's a little bit late, but we have time for one. Pamela, hello, nice to see you. It's been like Hi. years. <laughs> I, I read all the emails and uh, I had to I had to tune in. I uh, hopefully will make this more of a habit. Um, one thing I wanted to say was I loved what you said about recognizing that there was something you didn't want to feel. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the part of the easing of that locked mm -hmm. pattern had to do with getting closer to the whole phenomena yeah. and that resistance um, relaxing because you were it was like you get got close enough to it to maybe feel a little bit of what it was you were afraid to feel and the fear and resistance started to to melt but yeah. i also wanted to just add that um joan tolson is is my mentor and i talk to her pretty oh, <laughs> regularly cool. yeah it's really cool um and she still bites her hand <laughs> She still uh -huh. bites her fingers. So we actually just talked about it like two weeks ago. I also bite my fingers. Mm. Um, and she she's got it much worse than I do. And she like showed me her bandages. Mm. Um, and I guess I just want to say that, and, and she has a wonderful sense of humor. Mm. But, you know, it's been 15, 20 years since she wrote that. Mm. And the practice didn't make it go away. Mm. And that's, and so I just want to reiterate the importance of not having a goal oriented approach to awareness because at her relationship with it has shifted a, a great deal, but the behavior itself, it remains something that she uh, experiences occasional, you know, on mm -hmm. occasion. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's really important. Yeah. Hmm. How cool that you, that you reached out to her and connected in that way. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, um, it's, it's absolutely the best. I've been, I've been kind of tempted to do it for a long time and finally, hmm. finally did. That's great. So it's 834. I mean, the, 
this is just an extension of things we've been talking about, right? And we'll continue talking about, so we don't have to say everything tonight. But if people want to pick up on any of this next time, please do, because I know there's a lot to chew on, you know? Um, and so um, can we sit for just a minute before we say goodnight? Okay. Okay, everyone. Good to see you all. Take care. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>